Today we bring you an encore presentation of Wavemakers from last September. Their guest is Tim Burke, whose home office was raided by the FBI in May. Now he's denying that he hacked Fox News and he's demanding the return of his devices. Janet and Tom will be back next Tuesday at 11. We're not taking calls today. Welcome to Wavemakers on WMNF. Um, this is a, a weekly show conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And answering the phones for us today is John Dunn. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. Today's Wavemaker is one of the stars of the popular Netflix, Netflix series Untold, The Girlfriend Who Didn't Exist. The two-part documentary tells the bizarre and disturbing story of how Notre Dame football star Monty Teo rocketed to national prominence, partly because of a double tragedy he overcame at the start of his senior year, the back-to-back deaths of his beloved grandmother and his girlfriend. Joining us is Timothy Burke of Tampa, the former Deadspin reporter who exposed the lie behind that inspiring story. Matt Teo had been catfished. Welcome, Tim. Hey, good morning. Since breaking the story in 2013, Tim has gone on to become a master of viral Twitter memes and videos, some of them skewering Republican hypocrisy. We'll get to that later, but first, the Untold series has been one of the most popular shows on Netflix this summer. Tim, for those who haven't seen the documentary or don't remember the story, how did you unravel this story that the rest of the media missed? So it's it's kind of interesting because... It's kind of in my nature to sort of dig into a lot of these things and and verify them. I even have a a sticker on one of my monitors that just says the word Kimmel, a reference to Jimmy Kimmel and his his regular uh, attempts at at, at doing, you know, little viral hoaxes. Uh, But for whatever reason, I never really dug into uh, the story of this dead girlfriend during the college football season, despite being a big college football person. And it wasn't until a couple days after the season ended, uh, it was actually January 12th. Uh, 2013. I know the date because it was our one-month wedding anniversary. Mm. My, my wife and I were out at the late, great um, CB's Citrus Orchard um, out there in Racetrack Road. Uh, and I got a text from Jack Dickey, who was at the time a, a college student who was uh, working with us at Deadspin. And he advised me to check my email and we checked the email. It's a Friday afternoon and the email came from somebody calling themselves Chris. And it said, you know, uh, I'm out here on the islands. It's an open secret that uh, Manti Teo, you know, the girlfriend that he dedicated his season to, the girlfriend doesn't exist. Please look into this. And so well, that's kind of an interesting, you know, tip. And we'll, we'll go ahead and, and look into that. So I headed home and we lived in St. Petersburg at the time. And um, the first thing that I did was I, I looked up the name of the, of the girlfriend and I said it was Lene Kikua. And so, so I Googled the name, Lene Kikua. I just Googled it. And within about 15 seconds, I was pretty convinced that this person had never existed because uh, the Google results were just references to her being dead. They were all stories about her being dead. There was no, there was nothing on the internet about her. And being dead in relation to this football player, right? Right. Because there were were stories about her. Right. They were all stories about her being Manti Teo's dead girlfriend. There was there wasn't even an actual, you know, obituary, let alone the, you know, the paper trail that you leave on the internet having if you're somebody, you know, under the age of forty essentially, where you have 
all kinds of social media accounts. You have, you know, newspaper stories listing your graduating high school class. All these different things that show up on the internet if you exist, and she didn't. And over the next two days, uh, you know, I worked with Jack Dickey to, to track down who had the actual person that had appeared in the pictures that were used to portray Lene Kakua and all the news coverage and made contact and talked to that person who was very much alive and had never met Manti Teo or talked to him. These photos were all on Facebook, right? Is that, that was the means for catfishing him. Um, there was, I mean, they were on a lot of different social media platforms. They were on Twitter as well and Instagram. We you know, basically tried to track down every image that had been used to portray Lene on all these different social platforms. And I collected all of those images and then, you know, emailed them to this person who I believed to have appeared in them and asked her how many of these photos are of you. And she wrote back and said all of them. Hmm. And so, you know, then it was a matter of tracking down who had been using them to portray this Lene Kakua. And, you know, we got we connected a bunch of things that people had been tweeting at Manti during the course of the season, alleging that Lene didn't exist and saying who it was. We just had a first name and we, we ended up tying the last name together with the sake of this person. It was somebody that she had gone to high school with. So this was out there. This had been out there, just but nobody was following up on it. Right. In fact, you know, one of the things that we discovered in, in researching this is that, um, you know, several people who either knew Naya, the person behind the Lene character, or knew or knew Manti or both, had, had tweeted at him throughout the, the season that Lene didn't exist. And the response from from Manti Teo to these people was to bl- actually block them on Twitter. Hmm. So, uh, you know, and whether he thought that was harassment or whether he, he didn't, you know, he didn't want to have to deal with that, I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not sure. But that you know, there were people who were trying, who, who were on the inside, people who saw, um, you know, Naya Tuyasasopo at work doing the Lene character, um, trying to, you know, inform people because, the, you know, Manti wasn't the first, quote, unquote, you know, like victim of Lene. Mm. Uh, the Lene character, as, as is depicted in the picture, you know, existed for, for quite some time before that. And so people who either, you know, had been tricked by Lene before or people who had family members who may have, you know, fallen for that character were, you know, informing or trying to inform uh, Manti that she didn't exist. And the response was to get blocked so that they couldn't continue trying to contact him. So he was in denial because he had friends telling him, wait a minute, something, he never met her. I think that's part of the most, uh, to me, one of the most weird part of the story is that he called her his girlfriend, but they had never met in person. Right. I think that there's, I mean, there are still a lot of unanswered questions and, and I really do, you know, I encourage everybody to, to watch the film and, and sort of come up with what they think the remaining questions about it should be. Um, in so far as, you know, how did all of these stories that get published in, in newspapers and magazines about how Lene and Manti met, um, you know, in person and their, what their in-person interactions were, how did those things ever get into the paper? Who was the source hmm. of those stories? But also... You know, there's there are people who, you know, swore to me, people who were Manti's teammates who swore to me that they had met her. That Oh, yeah, I've I've met Lene. She exists. Wow. Uh, so. And then there were people who, you know, in the film, it's asked very directly of Naya if um, there was anyone else involved in creating 
the Linnae persona, which, as, you, as you'll see in the film, and as, as we tracked down at the time, was not just one sort of character. There was an entire Kakua family and extended right. family. And one of the... And he was talking to these folks. On the phone. So right. She was, right. The, 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 she was pretending to be different people and talking to him as if she was his brother or, the, or different people. Right. And one of the big challenges for, for Jack Dickey and I during the reporting of this, and... And and some of that is just because we you know we were we were very rushed. Uh, we didn't know it at the time, but we were, you know, there were other you know, ESPN says that they were on the verge of reporting out the same story at the same time. Uh, but you know, we got the tip on a Friday afternoon, and this isn't clear from watching the watching the film. If you do, we got the tip on a Friday afternoon. We had sort of solved the mystery by Saturday night and we turned in our first draft on Monday morning and we published on on that Wednesday. So we turned this around from a tip to publishing uh in about five days, which is a you know a pretty quick quick turnaround. But oh, yeah. you know, it was also really kind of facilitated by the fact that, you know, I was in St. Petersburg at the time and Jack Dickey was at his parents' house in Connecticut. Our editors were in the office in New York City. And we all collaborated on it through a shared Google Doc. And that's sort of how we were able to put this together. But in the course of trying to do this, there's a lot of texts between Jack Dickey and I trying to sort out what the sort of extended family the Linnae extended families, you know, sort of thing was. And part of that is because, you know, within, you know, Hawaiian and, and broader uh, Samoan culture, there's just like, it's normal to call somebody your your cousin. Mm-hmm. And uh, trying to parse whether people who were being referred to were actual cousins or like non-familial cousins was a, was kind of a challenge. And, and once we got to the point where we realized that none of these people actually existed, the lack of consistency in what their actual relations were made a lot more sense. Like, well, is this, is this their brother? Is this their sister? Is it their cousin? Uh, it, it was like, it was none of them because none of these people existed. But this story attracted you because of the importance that it played in sort of his brand, his, his, his national reputation because it was announced at some point that his grandmother and his girlfriend had died within, what, hours, days of each other? Well, it's, it, the order is kind of interesting okay. because that's, you know, it's not, I mean, Manti Teo was a, a middle linebacker who was a Heisman Trophy finalist. That is not a very common position to find themselves in New York on the night that the Heisman Trophies are awarded, right? So it, it certainly... Um, propelled his story to a level that it would have reached a lot more people early on in the season. People who were not necessarily sports fans. People who were casual uh, sports fans, maybe. Right. And and it's not, you know, it's not, look, let's be clear, Notre Dame had an undefeated regular season and played in the national championship game. And the and know, he was an important part of that And team. he was a key part of that team. Right. But at the same time, again, a middle linebacker is not the usual, it, it takes... A lot of attention, uh, especially when it comes to the Heisman voting, which is uh, among a lot of people who may, they're, they're journalists, but they're also football players and, and people who are not necessarily paying extremely close attention to every single team in, in college football. But um, it was interesting so far that, you know, we at Deadspin at, at the time had, had always been a little skeptical of the sort of myth-making that happens within Notre Dame football. And the, the history of that 
you know, goes all the way back to Newt Rockney, you know, telling his team to play for his son who was on his deathbed. And then the team goes and wins and the kid comes running up to them uh, and celebrates and the kid wasn't sick at all. Like Newt Rockney, you know, made that up. The, the win one for the Gipper, you know, George Gipp, you know, he, he was, he, he was, he didn't even graduate from high school. He didn't, he was barely enrolled at Notre Dame at all. Uh, the, the, and the history of that sort of, you know, tying into that. Hmm. And I think the thesis of the story that we wrote, and it may not necessarily come across in the film, but I think the thesis of the story that we wrote was that this story about a football player whose girl, whose, whose grandmother died and then his girlfriend died hours later, or the other way around, depending on how, you know, whether it came from which source and where you read it, CBS News or the New York Times or the, the newspaper there in, in South Bend or ESPN, it ranges from hours later to uh, a week later that the, the deaths were separated. But uh, that that sort of that sort of story that that coming out that way that that story of of facing such incredible tragedy at the beginning that, of the season right right and final that, you know, year at Notre Dame and that he you know and that the the girlfriend made him promise to play in the next game rather than attending her her funeral which we now know was not an option because there was no funeral right <laughs> Uh, but even then, that like the Associated Press saying that her funeral happened in a in a city in California that doesn't exist, right? You know, just like from the beginning of the story, it should have been something that would have flagged someone's interest in looking into a little more. Now I know uh, it's been nine years, but I believe Google existed back then. It, it might did, have been yeah. available to some writers, some sports writers. And and but that the story was too good to fact check, right? That that it was. Why would you fact check that? I mean, you would assume, you know what I mean? I think that's what one of the, what a reporter would say. Why would you fact that? Well, you would that? Want Why to would find somebody that, lie about that? You want to find the woman. You right. want to talk to the, to, the, to the girlfriend, right? I mean, you, at, at a minimum, you want to, hey, this sounds like it would be a great interview. Well, the... the and, but the, then after, if you poke around, you go, wait a minute, I can't even find any existence. This, is, this has been the, the really common sort of response to our both our story and the and the film from national sports media members is that what do you do expect us to look up the death certificate and no you don't expect that but asking at least a few questions about for example uh, what her family had to say about all of this uh, if you know you had a six day lead time effectively on the funeral where he allegedly sent you know a dozen white roses. You know, maybe you would send a reporter to the funeral. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there's just there's a lot of things that should have been immediate red flags, not just the you know news outlets not knowing the order in which the two people died or how far apart right. those deaths occurred. Right. But like, we have an instance where one news outlet said that Manti was informed by his brother that Lene had died. And then another one that said he was informed by Lene's brother that she had died. Again, there's just these sort of huge discrepancies in this reporting. And a, a normal news story doesn't have those discrepancies. Uh, if they do, it's on account of differing sources providing their perspectives on something that happened. And it's made clear that that's this person's perception of what went down. In this case, these things were reported as fact. And the national media has defended that as saying, well, you know, we reported a bunch of things that weren't true, but it didn't hurt anybody. And my response to that is the things that you reported that weren't true are the reason I had a story to write. Right. It's the reason there's a, a film out now depicting these events. 
if you had done your job at the time, we would have had nothing to write. And I wouldn't be in the studio right now. If you're just tuning in, this is Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom. And we're talking to Tim Burke. And he is the star of the Netflix series Untold, The Girlfriend Who Didn't Exist. And he's actually the reporter who broke that story that the Netflix documentary is based on. If you want to give us a call and join the conversation, you can call 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org. And did you see the did you see the documentary? Did you watch Untold? What did you think? What was your takeaway? For me, I was just heartbroken for poor Monte Monte Teo Monte Teo is that's how you say it when you think about the what horrible pain he was going through so traumatized first by thinking his girlfriend was dead thinking his grand his grandmother had died thinking his girlfriend had died and then finding out that she wasn't um and then people accusing saying that he made the whole thing up himself for some reason for attention or because he's gay or something just feel so sorry for that kid what so what was the reaction to that story when it first came out well i think and 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 i think both jack dickie and i really tried to make this come across in the film um but it also really came across in the way that we delivered the story and in our subsequent follow-ups at the time i thought that this was a college football media story from the beginning i said this is a story about ESPN and the New York Times and the Associated Press and uh, all these major news outlets reporting a bunch of things that never happened and it helping boost a, a college football player all the way to the Heisman ceremony. That's what I thought the story was about. And so we didn't aim our follow-up coverage at any of the sort of speculation that was eventually going to come out. Like, you know, the... All of the things that the the broader media, and, and part of that is I had no idea that the Manti Teo story was known by people outside of college football, right? I thought that this was a college football story, but the people who didn't even follow sports knew about the college football player who right. you know dedicated his season to his dead girlfriend. And so it blew up that way. And we lost, like, we lost a handle on it. And, you, you know, you talk about any time in journalism and you break a story, you want to own the story. You want to have all the follow-ups. You want to have people coming to you with more information for those things. And um, <clears throat> it, it didn't, it didn't, we lost control of the story. Uh, TMZ took over the story and other outlets took over the story. And part of that is because we, we didn't see that this was a, hu- a human interest issue um but part of it too is like we got a lot of bad tips for example like i said uh you know we had people who swore they had met lene kakua we had people who you know um you know wanted us to look into these other online characters that were supposedly being portrayed by naya tuyasopo and weren't right so you know we we kind of went down some bad trails and we also fell into the um, I think understandable pathway of doing media coverage of our story rather mm-hmm. than doing follow-up reporting. Um, and I would certainly do less of that, I think, if but I ever had the chance. One of the things that was so interesting was that immediately, almost immediately, it seems like, uh, there were questions about whether he was gay because one thing I don't think we have clarified here in our discussion is the girlfriend turned out to be a man. Sure, or or somebody who was or somebody who was uh, who was um, transgender. Right. right. So 
I have no idea. See, this is this is a, a, one of those things I don't understand. I don't know how you make that leap. I don't know how you make the leap from Manti fell for a, a fake online persona to he, he's gay, unless like the idea is that you, you you believed that he was having these these phone conversations with somebody who was visibly presenting as male um, or masculine. Again, if I had foreseen that being a conclusion that people would have jumped to, we would have addressed it in our original reporting. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's a lot of failures with our original reporting. And, and I think that the not understanding where the story was going to go is the major one. And, and so I couldn't begin to tell you why people came to that other than I, I guess they thought that he was because he was talking to somebody who's was presenting as, as a man that. He must be. He must be gay. I, that doesn't make any sense to me. And it's like, how do you explain that? I don't, I don't know. I don't know how you could come to that conclusion in the first place. But that's that's where so much of the conversation uh, headed, it's, uh, by the sports media anyway. People All right. Well, no. And Katie just, Couric. Yeah. Manti went on Katie Couric's show a week later, and she flat out asked him, "Are you are you gay?" And he yeah. said, "Oh no, far far from it." Right. Said, why why is that? Why is this a conversation mm-hmm. that we're even having? Why is this? Why has this come up this way? And did you get also criticized for even revealing this this secret? No. Did people want the myth more than they wanted the reality? So, not at the time. At the time, the immediate reaction was, oh, they must, you know, this is deadspin. This isn't true. And then Notre Dame, of course, came out with a statement hours later confirming that it was true. And at that point, it was, oh, you know, wow. Where where did this come from? What was the actual you know history of this stuff? And the response since the film has come out has been very different because there's a lot of people who saw the film who were not familiar with the story as it was reported at the time, and the film doesn't necessarily go into what happened after it. it you get a very brief glimpse of Manti Teo's subsequent professional football career, and so. Now, I get a lot of emails from people, particularly people overseas, because Netflix is showing this film all over the world. And, you know, oh, Manti could have had a pro career if not for you. You you know, you ruined his NFL chances. And, you know, Manti Teo had an eight-year NFL career. He was voted captain of his team. He had He played in, I think, exactly the average number of NFL games that a NFL first-round draft pick appears in. But the film leaves you to believe that he didn't have much of a career because they were expecting that he would be picked in a very high number. He was one of the top uh, draft picks, and he turned out not to be. I guess that would have affected maybe how much he got paid. It, it, but they never really explained yeah, how successful he was. It affected how much his initial earnings in his his rookie contract would have been by going from the first to the second round. But of course, where he actually was projected to be drafted before the story came out is is of a wild debate. There are some people who said he would have gone, you know, in the middle of the first round. Some people say he would have gone at the end of the first round. He's a little smaller um, and a little shorter than a usual NFL middle linebacker, so he had some physical things going against him and stuff like that. I mean, we'll never know. That's all just what what could have, should have. But the reality is he had a uh, he had a fine NFL career, and it would have been much longer if he hadn't suffered two catastrophic injuries that, you know, really rendered him unable to continue his career. And meanwhile, the girlfriend has transitioned from, from uh, to, to a... Uh 
to a female. Uh, and it's interesting during the film at the very beginning of each of the, both episodes, they tell the viewers that that uh, at the time the interviews were made, uh, the people being interviewed didn't realize that that he had transitioned. Is that right? That was interesting because uh, the director R Ryan Duffy informed me that that you know this this disclaimer was going to be shown at the beginning of the episodes, and I said, you know, depending on how you construct the film and how you tell the story, that could be sort of like a spoiler alert. But mm -hmm. as as it turns out, the way that, that we presented it, it wasn't really made, it, that Naya's transitioning wasn't really made part of the story. No. And well, I don't, I, I, I'm I, assuming that it was included because there were interviews in which the folks were referring to Naya as a man. Right, right. And, and, and so and they wanted you to understand, I understand why. Yeah. I mean, I understand why they, why they put the disclaimer there for that purpose. Um, but it's, it's sort of interesting that, you know, why would Naya do this? And, you know, Dr. Phil and Dr. Phil appears very briefly in the film <laughs> uh, and not very, not very helpful about it. But, you know, it's, oh, it's explained that, you know, at the time, oh, Naya, you know, um, he's gay and this is why, you know, he decided to do this. And then it's sort of that kind of became a convenient Dr. Phil explanation of what was, I think, a lot more complex of a situation. So this raises a lot of questions about what you can believe and what you can't believe in the media, right? I mean, uh, and I know you spend a lot of time on, on Twitter skewering the media for that kind of thing. I was curious, though, before we go into that, how, yeah. did, how did you end up, how did the Netflix series come about? Tell me, tell us about that. How did that end up happening? So it's a, it's a really funny story. So we wrote the story in January of 2013, and we had explored a couple other opportunities, Jack Dickey and I, to... to turn it into something else, books or whatever. And it sort of, you know, forgot about it, knowing that eventually down the road, somebody's going to contact us to, you know, to option, option our story. And so that happened eventually, I guess, about five, four or five years later. And we were contacted by a, a production company that's owned by um, the actress and, and model Chrissy Teigen, who is uh -huh. somebody who I... Um, you know, converse with occasionally on, on Twitter and things <laughs> like that. And so, you know, we like her a lot and really wanted to work with her company on, on developing this into something. And so Jack and I decided to, to go ahead and, and sign with them into a, into a, you know, a production deal. And two days later, okay, so we waited, whatever, four or five years to be contacted to, to option the story. And then we sign the rights, and then two days after we sign the rights, we get contacted by the Way Brothers production company. Oh, hey, we've got Manti on board. Uh, we're going to do this documentary. We'd really like to, you know, enter into a, a deal for your work. Hmm. You know, we signed it away two days ago. Oh. Um, and so there's, I guess, a licensing deal there or whatever, and it's it's uh, it's fine. It I think that would I, you know, make a couple of changes in the way that I would have presented the story? Absolutely. But I think it's a, I think it's a beautifully shot film, and I think that the director, uh, again Ryan Duffy, did a, a tremendous job in the visuals. I think that the the music, and I think that one of the things I was really impressed by, just because I'm a nerd for these things, is that uh, you know we're talking about what things like Facebook and Twitter looked like in 2012, and they like, emulated it perfectly. Uh, mm -hmm. You know that they recreated social media 
as of 10 years ago in a, in a very, very accurate way. And, and as somebody who's just sort of a stickler for these kind of details, I was very excited to see them pre- presented in that manner. As, as, as Tom was saying, um, the, the whole story of the Manti Teo is a question of what's real, what is news, what is not news, what is fake news. Um, and the, we, I saw you posted something on social media um, this last week, I think, pointing out that there's a scene in the film where it says St. Petersburg, Florida, and the image behind the words is actually the Hillsborough River. Um, so one of the things that you, as, as Tom was saying, have also become known for is some of the work you've done on social media was skewering um, Republican um, hypocrisy um, by creating these videos. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, and, and, and to be fair... I, I, while it may seem consistent that it is skewering Republican hypocrisy, it is, I, I am opposed to hypocrisy in general. It just so happens that of in recent politics, it is Republicans who are most consistently the ones committing, um, you know, committing that hypocrisy. And so, you know, the, the most recent one uh, sort of example being in that the Outcries uh, from from right wing media about the FBI reclaiming um, presidential records and uh, classified top secret documents from Mar-a-Lago, and then their outrage and calling it a raid and everything else. Where you know we had uh, the the governor of the state, Ron DeSantis, um, you know um, defending his law enforcement actions uh, against a, a former state employee and declaring that it was not a raid. And, and, and the reality is they, they were the same thing. Mm-hmm. There, there were lawful warrants and these were law enforcement agents executing a, a lawful warrant. In fact, he went after a Channel 8 reporter who dared to refer to it as a raid. Right. And then he went on a rant. Yes. So, you know, it seemed obvious to me to, to do a, a mashup illustrating the ways in, in you know, th- these people arguing. And, you know, again, I've, I've done this before. Any, every time, you know, that, that somebody on Fox News says to an athlete who's speaking out on some progressive issue to, you know, stick to sports or, you know, uh, you know, just dribble your basketball and then highlighting every single athlete that has appeared on that program and how they were welcome to share their ideas because they just happen to be a conservative, right? It's, it's, it's something that I've done. It's something, you know, it's, it's not my idea. It's uh, John Stewart and The Daily Show started doing this 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I'm, I just picked up on it because my, the way that my brain works connects these things that I hear to things that don't, that, that create that cognitive dissonance. Also, and video I mean, is what you do for kind of for a living now. I mean, well, it is, gotten, it is, yeah. You don't, you don't just, uh, you know, uh, uh, do research on uh, whether stories are true or not. You're creating videos and, and to, to also make your point. And so you did that with Ron DeSantis and uh, a certain Fox News person. And, and what that was, was specifically was about um, uh, the video was underscoring DeSantis' response to the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago as compared to his response when, when there was a raid on the home of Rebecca Jones. Rebecca Jones. She was the whistleblower who was targeted after she accused DeSantis, the DeSantis administration of fudging the coronavirus data. And so... You featured Sean Hannity in that video. It was like a mashup, like a like fake he was interview. It looks like he was yeah, interviewing right. Ron well, DeSantis. I mean, it, I mean it's... <laughs> okay, I spent... I, I have a rule uh, when it comes to making something that I think is, is funny. And I, I spend 
no more than 15 minutes working on it. That's the rule. If you spend more time than that, it almost always ends up not being funny or interesting. <laughs> um, and I have too much to do in my life to spend time doing like projects for Twitter, right? So I, you know, I, I grabbed the, the video of, of this, the conversation on, on Fox News where Sean Hannity was having this meltdown and Laura Trump was having this meltdown about the raid on Mar-a-Lago and then spliced it in with the, you know, DeSantis. Um, it was quite clearly to me obvious that it was not real video. For one, like DeSantis is, for, for one, it's daytime where Ron DeSantis is and it's nighttime where, you know, Sean Hannity is. Another thing, DeSantis is not talking to the camera. Uh, the but audio you're expecting the, uh, the Twitter masses to be able to uh, <laughs> and, but most detect those subtleties. Like, every time that Ron DeSantis <laughs> is talking, the two other people on screen stop moving. Right, right. <laughs> because it's like we just paused the video. There I knew within two seconds what you had done, video. and I was stunned at the number of people who started tweeting this as if it were real. And as a result, you became the subject of you know professional fact checkers, and Twitter started. Uh, okay, yeah, Sean so, Hannity, and, and but but the most important thing is. It had about 4 million views, right? Right. Thanks much in part to Sean Hannity sharing <laughs> it, saying that it wasn't real. <laughs> and, you know, as somebody else who's prominent and I respect a lot said, you know, they said, I, you could not possibly have asked for a better response than for the subject of your, and, and, and not just Hannity, but like, like DeSantis's office shared it and said, oh, you know, this is fake. This is, and, you know, I didn't even know about that because the, the, the governor's spokesperson has had me blocked on Twitter for several years. <laughs> Christina Pushaw, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and she regularly tweets about me despite having me blocked. So that's its own sort of Which issue. means you can't see anything she's, right. nasty things she's saying. Yeah, so, but it, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, the, the president, the former president of the United States is no longer on Twitter because of various things that he tweeted. And... His tweets regularly, you know, were tagged with sort of misleading, um, this is not, like warnings yeah. and all that kind of thing. But I've never seen a Trump tweet with as many disclaimers or warnings on them as the video tweet of my DeSantis and Sean Hannity video. Hmm. It has it's a it's a it's a crime scene, and it is covered <laughs> in Twitter police tape warning you that what you are about to see is not real. I've never seen that. I, I didn't even know it was possible for there to be this many you know fact checks and disclaimers and manipulated media things. Doesn't uh, that make what people make people to want to look at it? Uh, I, yeah, That's a good question, right. right? It's like don't don't you know don't look at this hey, thing I'm pointing at, right? Don't read this book we're about to ban children, and then they immediately go out and try to find it. I mean, yeah, I, I hadn't actually considered it that way, Tom, and I think you might be you might be right. I don't know, but I also have I also but this is the thing, right? I, just like I spend 15 minutes making something and I throw it out there, I move on, right. or at least I I try to move on. I want to move on. I have other things to do. I don't like again. I make something. You're a prolific a, tweeter. You've got more tweets to send. Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> or just more things to create or whatever that is. Whether it be, you know, I have a song to write or I have art to make or whatever these things are. When you, I'm just a, a, you're a creator. You're a creative person. You make things and you want to move on. And I don't, I didn't want to linger on that dumb video I made, but I was forced to for three days because it just kept coming up. I just kept getting addressed about it. And so I was forced to, to have it stick around you for a long time. made the point about the hypocrisy pretty effectively, though. Now, similar uh, video uh, that you uh, tweeted out was about Chad Chronister and Andrew Warren. 
who, if our listeners were listening to Sean Hannity's show previously. Or that uh, would be Sean Canan. Sean Canan, I'm sorry. Not Sean Hannity. <laughs> apologize to Sean. Sean Hannity, not on WMNF. Sean Canan <laughs> on WMNF. <laughs> so you uh, used some old uh, Tiger Bay Club uh, clips, and I'm president of Tiger Bay Club, full disclosure, uh, that uh, showed him just heaping praise on Andrew Warren. Uh, I had never heard Chad Cronister speak a negative word about Andrew Warren until the day of the press conference where he went along with the governor suspending Andrew Warren. So uh, did you get any reaction to that? I, you know, this is a weird thing, Tom, and, and it's, it's especially sort of odd just based on, you know, um, to, to disclose that, you know, my wife is Dam City Council member. Lynn Hurtak, who is a high school classmate of Andrew Warren's. And so that sort of other half of my household is very rooted in the local politics aspect. But my audience tends sort of to be less so. And so even though the Andrew Warren story, I think, has gone national as a sort of a representative aspect of Ron DeSantis's sort of authoritarianism, uh, it hasn't reached the sort of people that I wish that it that it would. I mean, to me, that's a story. It's not. This is not a video showing Chad Cronister hypocrisy. This is a news story saying Chad Cronister, Hillsborough County Sheriff, has been consistent in his praise of the state attorney, mm-hmm. and then suddenly, overnight, he appears at a press conference to evict him from office. What happened? What changed? You'd think that that would be a story that the local news media, the newspaper, the TV stations would want to pick up and explore. There's clearly a story there. Now, I'm not equipped to investigate that story. I don't work for a a news outlet. I have my own job to do. Now, I've handed this over to you guys. You look into it. And maybe they are. And maybe it's just taking a long time. I actually, I do know that there are some people who are, you know, trying to, to file information, public information requests and things like that. But the... The reality is that that the just the existence of the video and that that's a story itself. I mean that you can report a news story saying that that the the sheriff has praised the state attorney repeatedly and then suddenly changed his mind. Even if you don't get a response, you call the sheriff's office. Hey, what changed? And they don't tell you. It's still a story, and I haven't seen it even published as that yet. And I, th- I think a lot of people were really surprised by that because um, Sheriff Cronister has been, is a Republican that a lot of Democrats in the community embraced because he seemed like he was somebody who was fairly moderate. And I think that they were really surprised when all of a sudden he showed up there standing next to Ron DeSantis supporting the ouster of Andrew Warren. And supported At- many of the same policies that, that uh, the governor cited in his suspension of Andrew Warren. Right, that's a sort of interesting aspect of it, right? That the that the in order to deflect from the the criticism that um, Andrew Warren had simply stated that he would not enforce a hypothetical law that hadn't even been passed yet, he decided to cite Andrew Warren's actions in terms of diversion policies and in terms of uh, juvenile justice reform that were the very things that Chad Cronister appeared before Tiger Bay on multiple occasions and said were good. And I, look, I'm in a privileged position of being a Tiger Bay member for many years and remembering the sheriff appearing before us in those instances. And you don't expect the media to remember all those things. Uh, even if you were another person who had been at those meetings, you might not remember those things because you're not a weird 
person who remembers that stuff like me. <laughs> but once it comes out there and once people are talking about it, 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 it ought to be all anybody's talking about. All, I mean, this is our chief, this is our county's chief law enforcement officer in a county with millions of people living in it who has suddenly reversed course on a number of key policies involving, uh, you know, involving law enforcement and criminal justice. And for some reason, I, you know, like only those of us, you know, in this little part of this community are asking that question. Well, let's let's play that. We have a clip and see if it works. But we have a clip of Chad Cronister from that Tiger Bay meeting where he appeared with Andrew Warren and spoke very positively about the cooperation the two of them had on um, law enforcement in Hillsborough County. I do want to echo um, our state attorney's comments. We've made some tremendous progress. It's not a perfect system. I think you guys should be proud of the progress that's been made because Hillsborough County is different. When you talk in terms of Hillsborough County being serving the second most populous county, but we rank 10th in, in terms of the top largest cities in terms of crime, that's because things are working here. Are they perfect? None of us will sit here and tell you that they're perfect. We'll tell you that we're working on, we're making some great strides. So making some great strides and yet maybe maybe the maybe his his partner there is is not necessarily fit to hold office well i have a theory that maybe he's worried that he's next to be suspended because if andrew warren wasn't uh, uh, enforcing the law the sheriff wasn't either although not likely that DeSantis would suspend a republican not fellow likely. republican I mean, who knows? We're just speculating, but right. This seems to be, you know, whether they're Republican, Democrat, it's about a loyalty oath, really. And it seems that the governor is insistent that people, um, whether there are laws at play or not, that people follow through on his vision for what sort of people ought to be um subject of criminal inquiries and you know i i don't i think that there there we know that that uh the governor had a a very private sort of um caucus with potential people for a potential future presidential administration i don't know if the sheriff was among those who made that trip but um you know, it's it's odd. You know, the, the, I like I said, I have I voted for Sheriff Cronister. I, like many other Democrats, mm -hmm. thought that he was doing a good job here. And I personally said, this is a guy who, because of his family connections, has no need for money. He has no need to seek any higher office. He 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 is set for life. Uh, he 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 is doing this because he sincerely wants to. So this shift. In his behavior is is really really shocking to me, and uh, it, it, it's disturbing. I I can't put I can't put it together. And again, if I were a local politics reporter or investigative reporter or something, then it would be my job to do so. But I have I have clients to serve. I have I have I have other things to do. Just a reminder that this is a pre-recorded show, and we are not taking calls today. Democracy's on the ballot this year, so let's let's face it. And this is just another example. Well, let's talk a little bit about your journey to here. How did you end up um, a Deadspin reporter? And then um, tell us what you're doing now. So let's start with how did you end up uh, working for Deadspin? 
Right. So I ended up coming down here from Ohio. Uh, let's see what it was. 20, 2004, I came to do my Ph.D. work at USF and uh, finished my coursework in communication at USF. Ended up in Jacksonville teaching there for a little while. Well, is that also where you got a women's studies certificate? Right. And, um... So that was part of, um, I, you know, we had to you, you have a sort of a cognate area that you focus in. When you, when you do a doctoral degree, and I, I realized that the number of classes I had to take in women's studies also would qualify me for a certificate. And so I did that, and um, you know, I never finished my, my doctoral dissertation because I ended up getting getting hired by, by Deadspin before I ever got around to, to finishing that. And did they, would they, they found the women's studies part of it appealing to their... Uh, no, I mean, like, <laughs> very, few people, very few people even know um, yeah. that part about my, my background, although it is consistently informed my my reporting my 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 viewpoints my positions on a lot of different issues mm-hmm. involving gender i think and, and not to criticize my own department at usf in any way but i i think that in terms of the, the personal development the courses i took in the women's studies department at usf have been the absolute most valuable hmm. but you know, we, we ended up moving to St. Petersburg for no other reason than, you know, my wife's best friend was a photographer at the, at the Times. We had other friends who worked at the Times and we wanted to be around, you know, what sort of constituted some kind of media scene. And so we moved to downtown St. Petersburg. And uh, after, uh, you know, a couple of years there, we looked for the right property in which, you know, I would have a place to work from and, and have enough space to, to do the things that I need to do in my studio but also have a right sort of internet connection, and that ended up being in Tampa. And so we moved, so we moved over here to Tampa. And that's like that scene in the in the film where you know there's a locator that says St. Petersburg, and it's a picture of the Hillsboro. In the story, <laughs> in the sense of telling the story, yes, we were in St. Petersburg at the time. Uh, in the sense of the where I am now, you know, that was a shot from our friends Larry and Kevin's backyard that we took them to because it was the golden hour, and they lived down the street on the river, and we said, oh, this will be a beautiful shot, and they ended up using it, so I was I was happy for what that. What is your studio? Does it look like the command post that it looks like in the uh, yeah, documentary? You know, this is a this is a true this is a true story. I didn't know what I wanted my office to actually be like. I thought about it for years, but I was eventually inspired by um, all the time that I spent over at WEDU in their TV studios doing interviews with national media after we published the Teo story. I didn't know how to present the screens that I needed in a way to be able to monitor so many things at once until I went over there and I was bored in between two segments I was doing for Anderson Cooper or something. And I wandered into master control and I saw their those setup that they had with them hanging from the ceiling and then going down the sides like that. And I said, oh, that's it. That's the way that I can watch all this stuff. And so then we found the house in Tampa, and we moved to Tampa, and I built my studio to look like that. So, so I think you have that on your Facebook page. You say, I get paid to watch TV. That's your job. You sit in a room with lots of monitors and well, it's, watch TV? It's, you know, it's, <laughs> we, we were on the old Seminole Heights home tour back in April, and you know, we had 500 people come through my office asking, what do you, what do, you do for a living? And I always have a hard time answering that. I, I do whatever people you know, ask me to do and pay me to do. And that's a wide range of hmm. different experiences. Well, I need some pavers put in. Can you help me with that? <laughs> Just kidding. But I it- can find somebody to put the pavers <laughs> in for you. That might be, that, that, that would be a better example. But I do, yeah, getting paid to watch TV in, in the sense that, you know, I, I, I have clients who need very specific deliveries of broadcast television events for analysis purposes, ratings purposes, whatever. Like that's an example. Uh, I have other clients who want social content created from 
uh, live sporting events. And so, you know, we do that with them. I have, uh, you know, a client that is a news start. I have a lot of clients that are news startups and we teach them how to monitor live breaking news and turn it into social content. That's a pretty major part of what I do. And so, yeah, I get paid to watch TV is a, I, I wish it's you know, a cheeky way to put it, it. It is. It's not like I'm a television. You know, it's not like I'm a, a you know a critic, a TV critic or something right. where you know, you literally get paid to watch TV. It's yes, but that's also how else do you explain what it is I actually do for a living other than I watch TV. And and so you also have a, a, a very big presence on Twitter. So are some of the skills that you're teaching these new startups how to use Twitter? So, I mean, sort of. Yeah, I think that you know, Tom, it's interesting because. There are things that you can teach skills, um, a, an, an approach to how you look for news and how the news breaks. But there are, are really a lot of it is things you can only learn from doing. And what your voice is on a social media platform is one of those things. I can't show you how to tweet because if I do, it's going to come across as inauthentic. Um, and you know, you, the voice that is the appropriate voice on Twitter is different from an appropriate voice on Facebook. It's different from an appropriate voice on TikTok, et cetera. Um, tw- you know, tw- th- there's all separate cultures and wh- whoever you present yourself as or your brand as on that platform has to be somewhat in line with the expectations of people on that, on that platform. When you go out of that, then, you know, then you alienate people. So I, t- I show people how to make content that is compatible with being shared on Twitter, for sure. Like, I know that these you know, clips that are more than 15 seconds long or so have to be really, really compelling mm-hmm. or people don't, aren't going to watch the rest of it. Uh, they have to get your attention at the very beginning. And there's a lot of skills training. Like, yes, you should create a captions file with every video you upload because not everyone is going to be able to listen to the clip that you upload. Not everyone is, um, is, is able to hear. And right? they might be watching it at a meeting and they want to be able to sure. read it. So you know, like, there's, there's a lot of that that goes on. <laughs> um, you know, people just don't necessarily, don't necessarily know. And, and there's, it's a continuous you know, conversation. And, and how, do you, how do you put a YouTube in a tweet? You'd be surprised how you know, that is a thing that we have to go over. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, I like working with new startups because they're, they haven't established sort of a, um, I don't say they haven't established culture, they haven't established an institutional history. And if you put good practices for um, capturing news, turning news into content at the beginning, then they can share that with everybody who comes after. And that's a, a good foundation. And we need more new news startups. We need more local news startups and getting them off on the right foot is I mean, it's like a, a personal goal of mine, and I'm and I'm happy to help them do that. I'm are curious you getting about lo- who these new startups are. What kind of what is are they? Are they blogs? Are they? No, they're not newspapers. What is the format for these new startups? What kind of companies are they? I, they're, they're generally you know digital digital, digital media, media companies. Um, you know, so I worked with uh, Recount, which is a sort of a multimedia news company in New York doing national news and politics coverage on on both social platforms and a website and they have a TV show and everything now and I've worked with um, new startups that are doing regional like statewide coverage so um, a a company that had news startups in let's see North Carolina and Pennsylvania and Arizona and Michigan and um, Virginia Mm -hmm. 
And so, you know, we, we set up, for example, here are all of the news sources that you need to be monitoring for these things. And here's how we can, you know, turn that stuff around. One of the biggest gaps, I think, in coverage in almost every state is things that happen in the state legislature. And oh, yeah. those are the things that impact people the most. So and, right now is so important. And so, and as we've seen with a lot of instances, there is the opportunity for viral content to come from monitoring state legislature coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, Ma- Mallory McMorrow is a state senator in Michigan and also a former colleague of mine. We worked together at Gawker. And she recently went sort of mega viral with a very impassioned speech that she delivered on the Senate floor there where she uh, defended herself against Republican claims that she was a groomer because she, you know, uh, supported, you know, LGBTQ rights. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was it was just a it was a very powerful speech and it was very you know quickly turned into into successful social content and she became a national figure and, as a result. yeah yeah, yeah. As, and and look i did to, i'll say she was going to become a national figure at some point regardless because she's an extraordinary person again you know disclaimer we worked together <laughs> 10 years ago uh and 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 i worked even closely more closely with her husband um but you know she's a, she's a great person she's brilliant she's going to be you know an, an incredible leader of her state or the country someday. And I look forward to that. But this was a, this was the right, uh, you know, avenue. This was the right vehicle to propel her to national attention among progressives. And it was the right message. And so how can we find the next one of those, whether it's going to be in Ohio or going to be in Florida, going to be in Arizona, going to be in Pennsylvania, whatever it is. Um, I think that local news outlets would be smart to be monitoring for those instances. And are you getting a lot of tips about catfishing uh, attempts? Oh, uh, my goodness. I, I, get to, I get I, multiple calls a day. People want me to find their missing husbands. They want me to find the fortune that their father left in, in a bank they can't identify. They want me to find their catfishers. <laughs> um, the, the most common thing that people want me to find is they, they, their cryptocurrency or their NFTs were stolen. Uh. And they want me to find their stolen apes. That's the most common <laughs> thing that people have asked me Well, for. there's big money to be made in that. I, 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 yeah, you know what? I don't. It could be millions. and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to find something. No else good tips then. Oh, well. So thanks for being with us, Tim. Thanks so much. Um, thanks to all of our listeners. And how can people get in touch with you if they do have a catfishing tip for you? Uh, I mean, they can, they can Google for uh, Tim Burke Twitter and they'll, they'll find yeah. me. Yeah, he's on, he's on Twitter quite a bit. Uh, you can get your, your daily screen cap uh, consumption. From Tim. Among other things. Among other things, yes. (laughs) All right. Thanks for tuning in. And um, this is WMNF Tampa.